As a church, uh, a few weeks back, quite a few weeks back, we set ourselves the task of going through the entire big story of the Bible in just 20 weeks. Might have sounded like a grand scheme, maybe a foolish one in your mind, but we've almost made it uh, to the end. Uh, and we're getting, yeah, we're getting right to the end of the story uh, today. And today, even though we're close to the end, uh, we're going to introduce a new character to the story today, and slightly an unusual one as well. And so I just thought, uh, just to start off, I'd do a little survey of kind of, if you've been along for a few of these uh, sermons uh, and you've read the Bible before, uh, which I'm sure many of us would, uh, what are some of your favourite characters in the story? So rather than just leave that out, let's give a, I'll give a couple of examples. Hands up, um, I'll give you a moment to think about that. Favourite character in the story so far? Uh, anyone go for King David? He's a kind of, yeah, we've got a few, a few King Davids. Yeah, it's good. Uh, what about any of the disciples? Any of them? Oh, by the way, just, you've got it, okay. <laughs> it's not Jesus was to the side, okay. That's our friend. You guys, you didn't fail. I just assume you get that. Jesus is our main character, but there's other characters. Okay? Any of the disciples? Phew, I, that was close. <laughs> any disciples? Do they not really make it? A few, few people go for disciples. Who else would people have, maybe? Any other? Moses. Moses, of course, Moses. Yep. So how many for Moses would go? Moses is a pretty big one, yeah. Abraham is good one. Any others for Abraham? It's cool. Any others? Daniel, good. Yeah, you see, we've got all sorts of great characters. We've had heroes, we've had villains, we've had mothers, we've had fathers, we've had all of those uh, guys. And as I helpfully corrected a second ago, uh, the main character appeared uh, just a few weeks ago. Jesus uh, entered the scene. And uh, today we get this new character appearing. And this new character is a little bit unusual. And he's unusual um, in the sense that this character's kind of been in the story all along in the background. And, and this character as well is never mentioned by name uh, in the story. But this character comes to the fore in a whole new way now. And this character is you. Do you know that? You enter the story uh, in the bit we're coming to today. Today we're going to look at the part of the story that's the birth of the early church. Actually the entire book of Acts we're going to uh, look at today. And uh, I think we very clearly see here how we enter this story and take up the baton in a whole new way. This whole story, I hope we've shown, is relevant to us, yet we enter in a new way uh, today. If you were with us last week, you'll uh, remember that I presented that the the big story of the Bible is, is kind of presented on the foundations of a problem and a solution to that problem, okay? And the problem laid out right at the beginning of the Bible, also throughout the rest, but very clearly at the beginning, is the problem of our sin, that each one of us, we want to be God. We don't want him telling us what to do. We can do it quite nicely ourselves. Thank you very much. And that's called sin, and that is a big problem, okay? And uh, as I said last week, uh, it brings death. In Genesis, we see that. And particularly, uh, kind of a spiritual death comes. And I think then for some people, as I mentioned, the problem then becomes just this personal spiritual problem. The problem of sin is that I have sinned, and you know what? It means I might be separated from God forever. I might even use the word the Bible uses for that, which is hell. That's a problem. But I tell you what, that's not the full problem, as we looked at last time. Sin can't be contained just in our own individual spiritual problems. It has a habit of breaking out. And sin affects things all around us. Sin affects our relationships with others. But also, as we saw last time, it's the cause of these massive problems in the world around us. 
story of the Tower of Babel shows all the sin and it leads to the scattering and dividing of the nations. The problems we still see on the news today, it's all part of the same problem. That's the problem that the story's built on and we saw the solution come into play last week and it centres on this main character in the story, Jesus. Jesus solves the problem of our personal sin, our standing before the holy and righteous God. His life, death and resurrection brings us forgiveness and new life, Okay. He deals with the problem. Fantastic. But again, we don't stop there with the solution. Because it's not just, the gospel is not just, God loved me so much he gave me a ticket to heaven. Get me off this island quick, God, I'm in. Okay, that's not the gospel. Actually, no, the new life that Jesus brings and the solution to the problem doesn't just solve the problem of Eden, it solves the problem of Babel. And actually, as the Spirit comes, it makes clear this power of Jesus heals the world as well. And we got to bring healing to the ends of the earth. Okay? However, the solution wasn't quite finished. I implied in it, but there's one final part in the solution that we've got to bring. And as I mentioned before, that part is us. Just to clarify, our salvation is from God alone, okay? The only thing we bring to the table is, this, is our sin. However, amazingly, in the solution to the problems of this broken world that our sin has called, caused, God has included us within the solution. Then the Spirit comes, Acts 1 verse 8, it says, You will be my witnesses. Now, while God gives us all the resources we need, we're definitely not to try to do it through our good ideas or cleverness alone. We've got a vital part to play. And so the question must be, what do we do then? It's a reasonably formidable task. It seems like something to do, doesn't it? How do we do it? What do we do when we, uh, to be Jesus' witnesses? And today we're going to look at how the first Christians answered that problem or that question. And as you'll see, they set a model for us to emulate. And very much, I think it's very easy to see how we fit in to this story. So, basically, the Spirit has come on the day of Pentecost. And as we saw last week, the disciples speak in tongues as a sign. Yeah, this is really to the ends of the earth, guys. But practically, on the day, what did this strange speaking in tongues do? Well, practically, the, the result was it gathered a crowd. Okay, And the crowd gather, and Peter preaches this first sermon of the, 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 the era of the Spirit, this kind of uh, great, great speech to the crowds. And it says they're cut to the heart. And at the end of that day, where we pick up our story, is Acts 2.41. Uh, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay, And this is where we join the story of the book of Acts. Now, to understand the book of Acts, it's helpful to see it's split into three separate chapters. Okay, Don't want to confuse you. There are 28 chapters with the big numbers in the Bible. But see, it's three chapters in one sense of three phases of things that happen in the birth of the early church. And they correspond exactly to Jesus' command that I've mentioned already from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to his disciples, before he ascends to heaven, look guys, when the Spirit comes, you'll get power and you will be my witnesses. But he's quite specific how that will work. He says, in Jerusalem, their city, in all Judea and Samaria, their region, and to the ends of the earth. Okay, three uh, fields of activity. And the book is split very clearly into, well, what do they do in Jerusalem? What do they do in Judea and the ends of the earth, uh, and Samaria? And what do they do in the ends of the earth? So let's go to the first chapter, if you like. Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem? Now, Luke's the writer of this book, and you might expect after this dramatic start, kind of weird, kind of 
spirit stuff going on, people getting saved, stuff like that. You might say, great, story's off and running. Come on, Luke, let's get some action. Let's get some healings. Let's get some, uh, I don't know, uh, conflict with the authorities. Let's see what's happening. But Luke, straight away, he brings us right back in to ask a small question of, what do these believers do? Might not be how you started the story, but that's how Luke starts. And he asks the question, well, how do these guys operate now? And it's a live question. These guys have got no tradition of how to organize church. They've got some models from Judaism of religious organization. They've seen how Jesus did it with his followers. But this is a whole new thing. They've got 3,000 believers. What are they going to do with them? Acts 2, 42 to 47 says this. This is what the first church did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the first church, what do they do? Well, how are we going to do this? Well, they listen to teaching, uh, which they respect and follow. They remember and celebrate Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They enjoy each other's company. They get to know each other better. They share their stuff. They meet each other's needs. And they know what it is to see miracles and growth in their community. The blueprint for the church is set at the start. We need to pay attention to that right away. And we will return to it in one uh, way or another. But then, right after that, Luke does what we might have expected at the start. The action kicks off again. The, the stuff, the exciting stuff. Okay? So Peter and John, they go into town and meet a crippled guy. They heal him, as seems to be a pattern that develops in this book. And uh, this is an amazing healing. This guy's been crippled from birth. And uh, what happens is, again, it leads to Peter gathering a large crowd, preaching the gospel to them. Uh, and this time, though, it brings them also to the attention of the religious authorities in the area who sees them put them into prison, another pattern that we will see developing in the story. Now, please remember, this is, not, this is not unusual, this is not a shock. These are exactly the same people who about three months before had killed Jesus. Exactly the same group of people, okay? And let's also know that Peter wasn't toning down his message a whole lot in this. The general tone of his message could be summed up in uh, Acts three fourteen to 15. How about this for seeker-friendly, Okay. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. He's not speaking about you in the abstract. You, he's pointing to individuals at this point. You killed the author of life. There we go, let's pray. I mean, that's his his message and he kind of keeps going in that sort of ilk. So um, it's reasonably confrontational and the obvious happens. They're arrested. However, the authorities have a problem everyone's on Peter and John's side because they've done a great miracle and they're all like Peter and John we love them so just to kill them is going to be a bit tricky so I think oh, what should we do I'll give them a flea in their ear send them packing and basically that's what happens I'm sure it will just go away yes I'm sure it will Pharisees don't worry about it at all okay so then Luke uh, goes on you think yes action but no Luke retreats back into the internal mechanics of church. Again, we're thinking, what? Did you not know anything about pacing of your stories, Luke? But anyway, um, he goes into the community of believers. Acts 4, 32, uh, sorry, just before that, after they come back, we get the first ever church prayer meeting. He thinks that's worth recording. 
And Acts 4, 32 to 35, uh, which will flash up there, but we're not going to read all of it. It gives us another snapshot of that community. Again, they, they share their possessions. They, they, uh, they gather together. There's a sense of community, of unity, of purpose, of togetherness with these guys. And uh, they've got to organize themselves in that way for when things are going well. But very quickly, it turns out, they've also got to organize themselves for when things aren't going so well, because then Luke starts to address some problems that are happening in the community. So Ananias and Sapphira, a couple, probably a very upstanding couple in the community, Christians, uh, they lie to the church about how much they've given. They try to make out they've given more. And uh, God makes it very clear, yeah, in the new community of the church, sin is still important. What does he do? Kills them. God kills them, die on the spot, okay? Uh, so that happens. There are also complaints about how the food is allocated to different widows in the church. There's no social security system, there's no benefit system, and so the church is providing for the widows, and people start arguing, you're getting more than me. No, we're getting more than you. And so the leaders appoint a new group of leaders, this group of seven leaders, it says, uh, and these guys administer the practical details of the, the food. Now, you, you might be feeling this now, but... Come on, we've got the whole book of Acts, Johnny. Like, there's all sorts of good stuff you could go to. You're talking about administering food. I mean, I'm sure that group of people are really important, but come on, let's get some focus here. I mean, this is a really stop-start start to the story from Luke, but we've got to ignore how he does it. And actually, it's completely deliberate, and it's very, very important we understand this. The mission is out there. Very clearly, it's external. It's about healing the sick. It's about preaching the gospel. It's about healing a broken world. But to achieve that goal, Luke is clear from the outset, the focus must be out there, but it also must be in here. It's about tending to the community. It's about looking after people. It's about uniting people in vision and purpose. It's about encouraging obedience in the church. It's about even sorting out logistics and, dare I say it, admin. It's at the beginning of Acts. You might say, well, why? Is it so we can make sure we have a nice, comfy social club to be in? No, no, far from it. Nothing could be further from the context. It's so that they could see Jesus' salvation plan spread to the ends of the earth. To do the big things, the early disciples knew they had to do the small things well. They had to. To do mission well, they had to do church well. We've got to understand that. We'll come back to that uh, later on. So what happens next? Well, we return to the action. You'll be glad to hear but it's not the kind of action probably this new community want because what happens now is persecution goes through the roof. Okay, so this time all the apostles are put in prison and they don't just leave them with a flea in their ear, they leave them with a few stripes on their back because they're flogged and sent off. Okay? Um, Stephen, though, is not so lucky. Stephen is one of the seven who helps the widows with their food, okay? Uh, and he has some trumped-up charges given against him, and then you'd have thought, oh, brilliant, we know what'll happen now. Angel will come and rescue him, won't it? Or maybe he'll preach and they'll all turn to Jesus. No, he's stoned to death, killed, first martyr of the church. And that triggers a far more serious attempt by the authorities to snuff out Jesus' followers. I think we've had enough of this. We're going to completely get rid of them. Acts 8 verse 1 says this, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is a disaster. Imagine you're in the story. Absolute disaster, okay? If you're in the church in Jerusalem, at least one of your friends has just been killed, Okay? You are grieving, you're mourning. 
Others have been thrown into prison. Maybe you have. Maybe your family have. Everyone is scared for their lives. Everyone's lost homes, possessions, families. That's the reality. It's a disaster. It's awful human toll of suffering. And that's true. But at the same time, we need to learn to hold these things together in our lives. God's at work. Because what God's doing is through this whole thing, he's ushering in chapter 2 of the story. Because where are they scattered to? They're scattered to chapter 2, to Judea and Samaria. He said, Jerusalem. Well, they've done a pretty good job in Jerusalem. Tick, phase 1 complete. Scattered, now we're in Judea and Samaria. Let's see how they do there. Let's go to chapter 2 of the Acts story, Judea and Samaria. So Luke follows these scattered believers as they go through the wider region. He focuses on this guy called Philip. Okay, now he as well is one of these seven guys, widow's food, all that sort of stuff. Now, you might have thought, okay, right, we've got an administrative food delivery problem. We need seven people. I can think of the kind of people. You probably wouldn't say it out loud, but you'll say, they're not the kind of people, really. They're not the most dynamic, are they? They've got to deal with the food and the logistics and all that. They must be that kind of person. No, not in the slightest. Stephen didn't fit that mould. Philip even less so. So what Philip does is he travels all around Samaria, telling people about Jesus, doing a load of miracles and the power of the Spirit, and loads of people start to follow Jesus um, to the point that he has to get back up from Peter and John to come and uh, tell them about the Holy Spirit, which he seemed to have forgotten. Okay, So loads of people becoming Christians, all sort of stuff kicking off. Then, if that wasn't enough, under instructions from an angel nonetheless, he travels on a road to Gaza. We've got the map there, so if you follow along some of this, the arrow is Philip's journey. He wanders off to Gaza, has absolutely no idea why he's there, but he stumbles into an Ethiopian eunuch who he uh, talks to about Jesus, and uh, the guy becomes a Christian, presumably takes the gospel back to Africa. Uh, And then, um, basically, from there, it seems he is spiritually and supernaturally transported to Azotus and up to Caesarea, and he preaches the good news about Jesus wherever he goes. Okay, pretty sensational uh, chap. Peter, uh, not to be uh, uh, outdone here, he also gets in on the action. He leaves Jerusalem. Uh, he, uh, he was a paralyzed guy. He raises a dead girl back to life, you know, normal day. Um, and in Lydda and Joppa, many people believe in Jesus. So that's Peter. Judea and Samaria is going swimmingly. Okay, Jerusalem tick. We've almost got the tick there as well. But now something happens that is absolutely monumental in the story that breaks the whole thing wide open and opens up our last phase. Last. I said last. Is that brummy or is that just me being weird? Anyway, last, the last phase of our story, okay, uh, in the book of Acts. And, and we've, got to, we've got to see this, so I just want to focus in on this bit for a moment. And to see how important this next bit is, we've got to understand the Jewish, the heritage these guys have as Jewish people, okay? Now, in the Old Testament, as I'm sure many of you will know, God's people was ethnically defined. And by that, I mean, when you want to look around, so who are God's people, you look at one ethnic group the Jews okay that's how it worked in the New Testament in the Old Testament okay now for a lot of old, the Old Testament actually they were one specific nation of the world the nation of Israel now they've been given this kind of privilege and responsibility and so they took it very seriously and for those therefore they were God's people and everyone out there just had one name Okay, they were called Gentiles. And basically, the Jews uh, were told to keep themselves separate from the Gentiles. That's how the Old Testament works, and that obviously the Old Testament focuses on Jewish people. What's it also interesting to note, and sometimes escapes us, is even when Jesus came, okay, he worked in that kind of culture and along the similar lines. So in Matthew 15, 
this Gentile woman, a Canaanite, comes to him, desperate. Her, da- his, her daughter is really sick, and she asked Jesus to help. And you'd have thought, we know Jesus. This is right up his alley. He'll be jumping at this opportunity. Jesus turns her away. The disciples come to him and go, okay, Jesus, a bit muddled. What's happening? Jesus says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Wow, Jesus said that, okay? Now, Jesus made very clear throughout what he was doing. There were hints galore. You know what, guys, one day soon, this is going to blow up, bigger than you can possibly imagine. But Jesus' actual mission was working into that context, mainly to Jewish people. Now, just so you know, he did heal the girl in the story, yet the point is clear. In the Old Testament, Israel were concerned about God's work done among Jews. Jesus modeled in his earthly ministry a work focused on Jews. And for the early part of of Acts so far, the the apostles' work has been almost solely among Jews. And so, as we saw last week, Pentecost is this wonderful prophetic demonstration of the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. But whereas at Pentecost you had people from every nation under heaven there, they had something in common. They were all Jews. They come for the festival of Pentecost. It was a Jewish festival, okay? It's a prophetic declaration, but they're all Jews. Even as the gospel spreads from Jerusalem, Philip is still ministering to Jews. Even the Ethiopian eunuch, why was he going on the road to Gaza? Well, he'd just come back from worshipping in Jerusalem. That's what it says. He's sitting reading the book of Isaiah. He's not some kind of pagan from a far-off land. No, he's Jewish. He's either adopted into Judaism or born in a Jewish uh, family. And there's all sorts of hints about this stuff. As I said, in the Old Testament, lots from Jesus, others already in Acts. But for those guys in Acts 10, this is an, in, an entrenched position. <coughs> to the point that, this might sound shocking to you, you think these guys are great. In Acts 10, the leaders of the church would not even have gone into a Gentile house at all or eaten with them. It would have been unthinkable. It was against all the rules. Okay, That's how entrenched the position was. But then God breaks the whole thing open to prepare the way for phase three of the plan. Okay, And this is how it happens. Peter is praying one day on the roof of his house and he has a vision. Okay? In the vision, this big sheet comes down from the sky and it's full of animals. Okay? And a lot of the animals are animals that Jewish people didn't like. They were literally not kosher animals. You could not eat them, according to the Jewish law. And, but then this booming voice comes to really mess with Peter's head, and it says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Men here, kill and eat. That's the kind of thing, okay? It's like, and he's like in the wilderness or something. But anyway, I like that, kill and eat. I wouldn't do it at the time. I leave my butcher to do that. But anyway, but they tell Peter to do it. Now, um, Peter's fully aware this voice is coming from God, but he's a little bit puzzled. So he does a funny thing. He says, surely not, Lord. It's like saying, I know you're God, but I'm not going to do it. Okay, that's right. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. It's like God's saying this, but I'm sure God said something else a while ago. Oh, malfunction. What do I do? Now, so what happens is it happens three times in the vision, and three times Peter defies God. And so he wakes up in a kind of state. What's going on? Do you feel guilty for disobeying God in a vision? Discuss 33 marks. You can think about that. Wake up in a dream. Anyway, but that's how he is. But then at that exact moment, the ancient Middle Eastern equivalent of a a ring on the door happens, whatever that would have been. Uh, And there are uh, a few people. There are some men there. And uh, they, it turns out, have been sent by a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who is a, a spiritually earnest man who also has had a vision. Okay, And the vision said, go and find this guy, Peter, and bring him over. He'll help us out with our kind of spiritual quest or whatever. Now, Peter might have been a little bit disobedient in his vision, which I don't think God's holding against him at the moment, because he gets it. Aha! 
I've got it. So he goes with them. But he's not very really happy about the whole thing. So he comes in. This is, imagine you have a guest around your house, and this is the opening thing. They say they let him in, and he goes, want to be really clear here. I don't want to be in your house. Not in the slightest. Us Jews, we don't eat with you. You guys are scum, basically. But God's told me, so I'm here. Okay, don't do that if you're going around someone's house. Particularly not mine. I will eject you from the premises. Okay, but that's how Peter uh, introduced himself to Cornelius and his family. And so kind of under obligation, he kind of goes through the motions. Yeah, let's talk about Jesus, etc., etc. What happens? Pentecost happens again. That's what happens in a sense. Acts 10, 44 to 46. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So what happens? Well, news spreads quite quickly about this. Okay? And so upon returning to Jerusalem, Peter's met with a very frosty reception. Acts 11, 2-3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Are you out of your mind? My paraphrase at the end, okay? But that's the kind of tone of this. So Peter explains himself. Vision, Holy Spirit fell, this is what happened. Let's imagine you're there. Let's imagine that there is a pause at the end of that talk. I don't think it's too much to say that in that moment, humanly speaking, the future of Christianity hung very, very much in the balance. Because there was a very, very real chance that the Jews around, including the disciples, would go, all right then, Peter, we let you off this time. Don't ever do that again, though. Don't do that. God's been good to us this time, but don't do it again. He says clearly. It's clear. We know this. It's our traditions. So what do they do? Acts 11:18 is a massive verse. When they heard God, when they heard this, sorry, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We should treasure this verse. In England, we have this weird view that we're God's holy people and that the ends of the earth are the ends of the earth to us, okay? Did those feet in ancient times walk upon English's pastures green or something like that? No, they really didn't. We are the Gentiles. You could read this. So even to Brits, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thank God for this verse, okay? And the rest of the world thanks God as well. But basically, let's move away from us. This paves the way to chapter 3, the final chapter of Acts. And it's Jerusalem, tick. Judea and Samaria, tick. Ends of the earth, okay? What's going to happen? Well, the very next passage makes it clear that it wasn't just Peter dealing with these issues. There were Christians all over the place telling Gentiles about the gospel. And uh, this rest of the story focuses on one guy and one of them. And he's a guy called Saul or Paul, depending which day of the week it was, it seems. Uh, I will call him Paul to avoid confusion. Okay, now Paul was a baddie in our story. He was at the forefront of persecuting Christians. A member of the Pharisees, not a good sign, as they didn't get on very well with Jesus in the first place. Uh, also, which gets him a massive boo, was he was there when Stephen was, was stoned and thought that was a great idea. So this guy's not good, okay? He's on his way to lock up some more Christians when Jesus appears to him, okay? Jesus, you might think, I'd love Jesus to appear to me. Well, Paul wasn't overly happy to begin with because Jesus blinded him. That was the first thing Jesus did. And then he told him, well, basically, mate, you've taken this way too far. Stop persecuting me. In fact, let's do something else. You are now going to serve me and you're going to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, okay? And Paul, <laughs> I mean, doesn't look like he has a whole lot of choice, but he does go along with Jesus. 
which is better than Peter in that dream, actually, but still, uh, he goes along with it. And uh, it's very clear what Jesus' intentions are with Paul, because he tells Ananias, well, uh, God tells Ananias in, uh, when he's talking to him, and Ananias is the believer who leads Paul to Jesus, trying to truncate the story as we go. He says this, This man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Okay? That's Paul's job. Okay, with a few other things added on as well. And that's exactly what happens. Chapters 13 to 28 of Acts focus on Paul's missionary endeavors largely outside of Judea and Samaria uh, in the ends of the earth, if you like. And we've got a map. You might not be able to see all the words, but if your geography is good, you might be able to chart this as we go along. Because Paul, over uh, the rest of Acts, goes through Syria into what we now know as Turkey, goes through Greece into Macedonia, and he takes in a few Mediterranean islands, as I would as well if I was doing that, on the way, Crete, Cos, Cyprus, that sort of thing. And the book of Acts leaves him in Rome, obviously in Italy. Okay, Now it's probable uh, that after that, it's not recorded in the book, that he goes on even as far as Spain. And uh, again in this section, as we follow Paul's journeys, uh, we see what we saw at the beginning of the book of Acts. And it's slightly frustrating when you're reading it, but you see all the action, the external stuff, the big stories, and then it kind of comes in regularly to the little detail about what's going on in this church and how are we going to do the leadership in this church and sort of stuff like that. So let's give a very brief overview. Paul has three missionary journeys. The first journey is from the Turkish city of Antioch, which is something you can see bang in the middle of kind of the left-hand side, okay? And it uh, largely goes to places that have never heard about Jesus before. And so he goes about healing the sick, preaching the gospel, bang, 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 action, 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 people becoming Christians. My particular highlight is the story when him and his friend Barnabas go to this one place and uh, uh, they heal a a guy who's crippled, paralyzed guy. And uh, the people, this shows their framework of understanding. They think, wow, it's amazing. The Greek gods have come to us. And no less, they think that Paul is Hermes and uh, Barnabas is Zeus. It's a fascinating thing. And start trying to sacrifice to them. And the other, no, cross-cultural training. Do you train on this one? What happens when people think we're Greek gods? Come back to life. So that's what happens as they go on their outward leg in this journey. But then on their way back to Antioch, they decide, well, actually, we've, we've done this, but we need to now go and strengthen these churches and encourage them to remain true to the faith, uh, it says in Acts 14.22. Now, again, this might sound like a boring detail, but Paul, the Bible does bring this up. By now, there is a structure developing to how church is getting done. Okay, in Jerusalem, the beginning, we saw uh, they were dealing with these questions, like big questions, like when are we going to meet? And uh, what do we do when we meet together? We know this sort of stuff. They were dealing with these for the first time. How do we do leadership in the church? How do we deal with this problem? How do we do organization? Okay, now it seems some of these questions had been answered because Paul and Barnabas, they start bringing these new communities of believers in line with certain structures being developed in Jerusalem. Now, to be clear, they didn't go with a massive rule book going like, right now, here's what you need to do. But there were certain things that they were expecting. Well, this is what church now looks like. So, for example, Acts 14.23, we can miss it, but it says this, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. That's new. They've kind of come up with that. They've taken it from other traditions, but that's what they're doing. There's now clearly an agreed pattern for certain things going on, and Luke isn't afraid to draw us back to the detail. And so, on returning back to Antioch, he goes out for missionary journey number two, swaps Barnabas for Silas and Timothy. Okay, And uh, in, th- in this one, it follows the same pattern. Preach the good news, do miracles out there, and then 
plant these new communities, these churches, to make sure they are working properly. In fact, in Missionary Journey 2, one of the main things that they were doing was delivering this Gentile discipleship manual and helping people to do it. It was like, these are the instructions from Jerusalem. We've decided this is how we disciple Gentiles. And so they were doing that sort of stuff. They have a third missionary journey, which is pretty much the same. And then they, Paul comes back to Jerusalem and is arrested. Okay, and this is in the very end of the book. Now, Paul had been arrested a whole load of times before, been flogged, been beaten up, been stoned half to death. He'd been through all of this, but usually gets out straight away. On this occasion, though, that does not happen. Two years later, he is rotting in a prison in Caesarea, and he thinks, you know what? They're not coming. There's no angel this time. I am going to play my trump card. Now, Paul had a trump card in this situation because he was a Roman citizen. Now, just got to understand, Roman citizenship was very important in the ancient world. Many people, if they were rich, would buy it. They would pay good money for it. Paul had been born a Roman citizen, and they had a number of privileges, and Paul thought at this point it was probably worth playing the privilege that meant you're not really allowed to imprison me without a trial, which was one. So he said, okay, guys, Roman citizen, I'm playing the I appeal to Caesar card. And they go, okay, it's like, do not go straight to jail. You know what's to happen when you get that monopoly. This is, well, you know what happens now. You go to Rome. Da-da, it's like a game show. You will go to Rome. You will meet Caesar. He will try your case. Okay, that is what happened. If you were a Roman citizen, you could appeal to Caesar, and he personally would oversee uh, a part, or at least hear, your case. And so he sent off um, uh, to Jerusalem, and as I'm sure you can imagine, it's a bit of a bumpy journey. Shipwrecks, snake bites, healings, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but he gets there, and uh, uh, he, when he gets to Rome, the story of Acts ends, and uh, basically he's got a pretty easy deal, I think, for a prisoner. He's given his own house, one guard to sort of guard the door. They don't think he's going anywhere. And the book ends with this, these two verses. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What a great end to the story. I absolutely love that. Basically, what you've got is this. Luke leaves the story with Paul in the most influential city in the, the heart of the Roman Empire, preaching the good news of Jesus boldly and without hindrance. It's magnificent. The job's not finished, but Luke's given us absolutely everything we need to see how this thing works. Jerusalem, Judea, ends of the earth. The gospel goes to all of them. And from there on, it's us. We follow on in this tradition. We follow on in their footsteps. And so just to finish today, I just want to bring uh, three things that we can learn and apply to this story. If we ask the question, well, how do we, when we hear Jesus' voice, say, you will be my witnesses. How do we do it? What do we do? Three things, okay? Firstly, we learn from the book of Acts. We have to know this. We have to pack this in our bag, the truth that the gospel wins. Okay, that story shows that truth, okay? We read Acts so often, like the end is never in doubt. Of course the church is going to grow. Of course they'll go to the Gentiles. Of course this is going to happen. It's going to be fine. It wouldn't have been like that if you were on the ground. Imagine you were an onlooker at any point in this story. Surely the chances of success would have seemed absolutely minute. Imagine you looked in when the religious authorities had started persecuting the church, killing its key members, and sent them packing. You can't meet here anymore. Off you go. Surely you'd have thought, well, I know what's going to happen here. These guys are new believers. They've got this new religion. They'll just go off and go, I didn't sign up for this. I'm going back to Judaism. Thank you very much. I'm not going to keep going here. You know what? The work of Jesus was powerful enough for that. They got over that hurdle. 
Imagine if you looked in when you saw how entrenched the Jewish church was against non-Jews. It really looked impossible that this could ever spread beyond that ethnic group. Okay? Jesus' work was powerful enough for that. The gospel was powerful enough for that. And Stephen was martyred. James was martyred. Countless believers in prison. Paul stoned half to death. Flogged. Locked up. Left to rot in prison in Caesarea. He looked in and thought, these guys are surely going to break soon. They've got to realize they're fighting a losing battle here. The work of Jesus was powerful enough for that. Jesus' work is a powerful one. We as a church find ourselves in a situation. Find ourselves in a situation where people are telling us all the time, the church is going to die. You heard that? And you hear it. People say, sociologists, yeah, it's had its time, now we're moving on to this and that. And you look around and think, oh, yeah, they're kind of right, that church is closing. And that's the thing. We're not exactly growing at a rate of knots, are we? Maybe they're right. We're told that stuff. It hits us. People are told nobody cares about Jesus. Talk to the people around us and we find, well, actually, they don't really care about Jesus. What's going on? Other religions seem far more active and imposing. And we could think, well, what's going on here? What's the future hold for us? It's very much in the balance. Listen, we've got to take this historical record very, very seriously. It's evidence of the power of Jesus in the real world for individuals, but also for whole cities, for the world of ideas and into the world of politics. Let's not forget, within 300 years of the end of Acts, the Christian, Christianity had overthrown the entire Roman Empire. If, if we made that up as a story, no one would believe it. It's 300 years. There are five to seven and a half million Christians by then in the Roman Empire, and the emperors had no choice, really, but to convert wholesale to Christianity. You can look it up. It's not in the Bible. It's history. That's the history of our world. The church now stands about two billion strong. Come on, guys. It's tough. I know things look difficult, but take heart. Let's be strong. Let's push forward because the work of Jesus is still and has always been powerful enough. Okay, we learn that from this book. Fantastic. We also learn, secondly, maybe not quite so fantastic, there will be trouble ahead. Reminds me of a song, but it's probably not worth singing about. The same time as all this happens, we see in this book that advance and victory comes at a cost. As the church grows, the church suffers. This book's full of deaths, persecutions, imprisonments. You know what? We don't pray for those things. But if you want to pray for the first thing, you've got to expect the second thing. We learn that from this book. Paul went around strengthening, he said he went around strengthening and encouraging the believers. He told us what his message title was actually, Acts 14.22. Here's his encouraging message. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There we go. That's how he encouraged the believers. As an elder of this church, I've been given a God-given responsibility to look after you guys. You know, it's what it is. I feel a burden for this at the moment. I'm sure... It, you might, I hope you don't, but you might well hear more about this and we might have to do more about this in the future. Because if the trends in our society continue going the way they are, we are on the verge of this stuff, guys. Can't be fooling ourselves about this. We are on a collision course with our culture and I don't think they're backing down. Don't know about you. The question is, are we going to back down? That's the only question. Trouble comes in all sorts of different ways living in a fallen world. But I don't think we're far away from mobs invading our meetings. 
I don't think we're far away from us getting kicked out of our venues, some of us losing our jobs for standing up for the gospel, even some going to prison. I've heard this, I heard this said when I was growing up, and I would always think, you know what, I can see what you're saying, but I can't join the dots, really, because I know there's a legal framework in place that would stop all of those things you're saying happening, okay? That legal framework is now no longer there and is increasingly being eroded. I'm not saying this to scare you, but I'm saying to prepare us because persecution is not a sign that God has left his people and we've done something wrong. It is expected, and it's in one way or another completely inevitable if we serve Jesus faithfully. We need to prepare our hearts for that day. And I hope you never hear that mentioned again in this church, but I have a feeling that you will. So be prepared. That's what we learn from Acts. The third thing, final thing, a very practical thing, is we ask the question right at the beginning, well, how do we slot into this story? We find out here how the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. And it's done through the local church. That's how it's done in the book of Acts. Now, yes, there are dynamic leaders. There are miracles. There are amazing preachers in Acts. But Paul spends as much time, if not more, tending to the mechanics of church and community than he does to mission. He even deals, and Luke deals at great length, with organization, structure, and even, dare I say it, the naughty word, administration. It's all here. Now, there is a focus on key characters, but actually the early church didn't grow through, primarily through dynamic sermons and even through miracles. It grew through these communities, these churches, that these guys tended and realized they needed to look after, growing and spreading the gospel all over the place. That's how the, 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 uh, the ancient world and the Roman Empire was changed, by churches that care, were carefully planted and faithfully lived out their witness. There's been a strong feeling in Christian circles for some years uh, that the local church is this sort of dated institution. It's pretty good at putting on summer fates and gives Christians something to do if they're bored or, or boring, for that matter. However, if you want to be dynamic, if you want to do the stuff Jesus did, you do something out there, outside of the church. This organization, this, this uh, uh, think tank, this kind of uh, movement here. Okay. Now, just so you know, those organizations and initiative movements got no problem with them. In fact, the opposite, many of them are fantastic, absolutely brilliant. Okay? But as far as Acts is concerned, there is already a radical initiative and movement uh, that has been founded. And as far as I'm aware, God has never brought that movement to an end. And it's called the local church. Yes, let's be clear. There is lots of boring things about the local church. There are structures you might have noticed there are quite a few meetings for some of you more than for others. There's administration, there's organization. There's also loads of difficulties. People not seeing eye to eye. Kind of misunderstandings, disputes even. They're here today. We live with that. But they were here in Acts too. And they aren't reasons to abandon the church. They are church. That's what church is. However, what they add up to, if we follow God's wisdom on how to build these churches, are communities of believers that, full of the Holy Spirit, build on the work of Jesus and change the whole fabric of the world. There's a church here. We are not a social group for you to flirt with. We're not a series of meetings for you to attend. We, without wanting to put it too much, we're a revolutionary organization to bring healing to a broken world. 
And my application as we end would be this. Get stuck in. Get stuck in. We've got a Get Connected course starting with our life groups. It's just simply three weeks, uh, or maybe four, but I think it's only three, at the beginning of the life group cycle. You can sign up for another life group. You just go on for three Tuesdays. Find out about our values and vision, okay? So kind of, you call it a membership course. Some of you think, oh, I thought I'd be a member, you know? Like, it's just so formal. We do, well, name on a piece of paper doesn't matter to us. But I tell you what, we're about big work. We're following <laughs> in the footsteps of the Acts of the Apostles. We want to know if you're in.